Hello, this lecture is being recorded for the week of October 20th, and we are going to talk about uh, two themes, ethnocentricity and adaptation. Adaptation becomes necessary for Indian communities after the United States is formed, and ethnocentricity, of course, is something that Native people have been dealing with um, since time began and continues to influence social and political change after the formation of the United States. Just to review for a minute, we're going back to the Treaty of Paris, which ended the American Revolution in 1783. That treaty saw Indian groups as conquered tribes rather than independent, autonomous nations. And that status as conquered tribes was based on the United States' perspective of Indians uh, alliances with the British during the war, as well as on the British right of conquest doctrine and its corollary, the doctrine of Indian savagery. So the United States perceived Native American groups as conquered tribes because the United States had defeated the British during the revolution and Indians were allies with the British. Therefore, the United States had defeated Indians also and its from its point of view. And then the the legal legitimacy of the United States being able to take over this territory from uh, British control was based on the right of conquest doctrine and the doctrine of Indian savagery. Now, as you remember, the doctrine of Indian savagery dictated three things. One was that taking land from savages is not illegal because they did not use the land the way that God intended. And second, the people who didn't use land as God intended had no civil right to the land, but they did have a natural right, which is an inferior right, because they only use the land on the surface. They don't subdue it and control it. The third aspect of the doctrine of Indian savagery was that America was an empty place because Indians didn't use land the way God intended. And being an empty place... Other people who were civilized, who um, did use land as God intended, could justifiably come in and and, uh, take it over, whether they controlled it politically or not. So if you convince yourself that the people living on the land are savages, then your conquest is justified and legal. And this argument was essential to the uh, United States' ability to take over uh, what the British had previously tried to control in North America. Britain, of course, had done this same thing 250 years earlier, and now the United States was repeating the pattern. Now, there were two goals of the Continental Congress after 1783. The one, one goal was to achieve secure boundaries, Um, As a matter of national security, it was important to the Continental Congress to understand where the limits of the new nation were and to keep those limits safe. And the second goal was to expand physically to the Mississippi, so to also expand those limits beyond where they were uh, currently bounded, according to the Treaty of Paris. Indians were crucial to both goals because they were inhabiting the land Um, 
that Americans wanted to secure and occupy, and also because the British were lurking around even after the revolution. And in American eyes, the Indians were always susceptible to allying with the British again and presenting another kind of military challenge to the United States. So to help solve this problem or help achieve both of these goals, in the 1780s, Congress negotiated a series of right of conquest treaties with Indians who mostly lived in the Ohio Valley, and those treaties dictated that the United States owned this territory by the right of conquest. Since tribes were allied with the British, they lost the war and they lost their land too. The Indians who signed these treaties were not typically official tribal delegations, but refugees from war who had been impoverished and had been victims of colonial depredations during the war. They were seeking peace, and they were not in a position to uphold political autonomy. In particular, vulnerable Shawnees and Delawares signed the Ohio Valley Right of Conquest Treaties in the 1780s. And then in 1785, Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance, which set up the territory system to encourage settlers to move into lands that were ceded in these Right of Conquest Treaties. The Northwest Ordinance said that settlers could govern themselves and become states once the population of settlers reached a certain level. Now remember that by right of conquest logic, settlement means ownership. Um, some of the land that ha these settlers went into had been ceded according to the right of conquest treaties, but some of it had not. Some of it was simply land that settlers moved on to illegally, but in um, under United States law, and under the right of conquest doctrine, that settlement was by default legal because civilized people were taking over the land of savage people. In the 1780s, in response to these right of conquest treaties and to the Northwest Ordinance, three Indian leaders in the Ohio Valley organized a group called the Northwest Alliance, to expel American settlers from their territory. The three leaders were Joseph Brant, B-R-A-N-T, who was Mohawk, Blue Jacket, who was Shawnee, and Little Turtle, who was Miami. They sought to unite tribes in the Ohio region and were strongly influenced by the messages of prophets that we talked about a few weeks ago. These three men wrote down a manifesto which they mailed to Congress in 1786, and there were three major tenets of the manifesto. The first was that they rejected the right of conquest treaties because the treaties were not authorized by native nations, and that the treaties wrongly assumed that tribes had been conquered. The Northwest Alliance argued that they had been fighting for their own interests, not for the British, and therefore for the Americans to assume that they were conquered because they defeated the British, because the Americans defeated the British, was wrong. The second tenet of the manifesto was that land is not the exclusive property of a particular village or tribe, and so um, they argued that the United States must deal with the alliance as a whole when negotiating for land rather than dealing with individual villages or tribal communities. The third tenet of this manifesto was that the Ohio River should be the boundary of settlement and that the Northwest Alliance was there to defend it. 
And so they had thrown down that gauntlet, but settlers from the United States as well as um, the new U.S. Army began to challenge the Northwest Alliance and their insistence on protecting the Ohio River as a boundary of settlement. Um, Settlers who would come from Kentucky across the Ohio River were continually raided by the Northwest Alliance, and in 1790, the U.S. built Fort Washington, which is where Cincinnati is now, um, to defend those settlers who were illegally crossing into the Ohio River, into the Ohio Valley. Um, From Fort Washington, troops marched up the Miami River and met with the Miami leader, Little Turtle, who defeated them in 1790. In 1791, the U.S. sent another army under General Arthur St. Clair, which the Northwest Alliance destroyed, and that was the most U.S. troops ever lost in a conflict with Indians in the United States. A thousand soldiers killed or wounded. This was a huge embarrassment for General, now President, Washington, uh, who then appointed General Anthony Wayne to organize another army. And in 1794, Wayne's army comes to Cincinnati with a much greater force of men, 5,500 men. The Miami leader, Little Turtle, decided to withdraw from the alliance and from the battle, but um, the Shawnee leader, Blue Jacket, decides to go in uh, with warriors from the alliance, and he winds up losing to the United States. The lesson of this story um, of conflict between the Northwest Alliance and the U.S. Army is that it was not impossible, it was never impossible for Native um, military and political interests to defeat the political and military interests of the United States, that in fact it did happen a couple of times. Um, First in 1790, then again in 1791. The U.S. Army lost to the Northwest Alliance both times. Um, But in 1794, when Anthony Wayne defeated the Northwest Alliance, it was largely because Little Turtle had decided to withdraw. He was worried that, that they would suffer a massacre um, and would not be able to recover from it. And indeed, Anthony Wayne's victory meant that even though the land had not been traded legally for settlement by Americans, a military victory made it possible for Americans to inhabit the Ohio Valley. Um, So what we see in this example is a kind of relationship between political authority as negotiated in treaties and military authority as negotiated in war. And we see that in this case, not in every case, but in that in this case, military authority is what enables um, the Continental Congress to achieve its goal of both securing its borders and expanding to the Mississippi. Now, eventually, um, 
Anthony Wayne defeated the Northwest Alliance and opened the way for settlement, American settlement into the Ohio Valley. But that didn't mean that the right of conquest treaties or that right of conquest philosophy ultimately produced any peace or concrete land gains for the United States. Indians still had military and political power to defend themselves, and so early Indian policy was located in the War Department. Today it's located in the Interior Department, but at that time, um, as Indians were still considered autonomous uh, peoples to a certain degree who were foreign threats to the United States, policies dealing with them were located in the War Department. George Washington's uh, chief advisor was a man named Henry Knox, K-N-O-X, who was his Secretary of War and developed a policy called Expansion with Honor, which was a Native American sort of peace policy, in a sense, that lasted into the 1820s. So Knox's interest, even though he was Secretary of War, Knox's interest was not in waging war, but was in negotiating with Indian tribes and bringing them into compliance with the American way of doing things, i.e. civilizing them from savage ways. His interest in civilizing Indians arose out of Enlightenment ideology, which stated that the differences between humans are the result of education and opportunity rather than inherent inborn traits. Now, the Enlightenment, this Enlightenment ideology was a key feature of 18th century Europe and the United States. Um, Many people adopted it, and in fact, it's usually credited with great documents like the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution. Um, Notably, this idea that the differences between human beings are the result of education and opportunity, not inherent inborn traits. So Knox's idea was that if you provided Indians with education and opportunity, they'd end up just like Europeans and therefore assimilate into American society. Specifically, the goals of the expansion with honor policy were first to bring peace to the frontier. They didn't want to see any more conflicts like those endured by the U.S. Army with the Northwest Alliance. Um, And Knox believed that if Indians saw their interests as similar to Americans, that there would be less conflict. The second goal of the expansion with honor policy was to gain surplus land by ending the hunting economy that took took up so much land. Knox believed that Indians would part with land to acquire things they needed to become farmers, that this was cheaper than gaining land by going to war. And the third goal of the civilization, of the expansion with honor policy, was to enhance the United States' reputation. Knox wanted to invest funds to improve the condition of native of the native population and also make up for wrongs that the United States had done during the Revolutionary War. He believed that both of these efforts would enhance the U.S.'s reputation on the world stage because, of course, he was concerned, justifiably so, that the rest of the world would accuse the United States of genocide if it did not approach the uh, takeover of land possessed by Native Americans in in an honorable way. So Knox's... uh, 
expansion with honor policy was based on four assumptions, and this is an example of how ethnocentrism shapes history. The first assumption was the idea that Indians would always agree to sell lands for goods and money. Um, Knox believed that Indians would do what the United States wanted. He believed this because he believed in the theory of vanishing Indians. Um, and that as civilized people, farmers, Americans who farmed land the way God intended, moved into Indian-controlled territory, that hunters, Indians essentially, would leave, would continue to follow animals because in Knox's viewpoint, civilized people can't live next to savage people. So savage people would simply move on, kind of vanish. Um, and so Indi uh, Knox believed that since Indians left their land behind, that they'd be happy to sell it. The second assumption behind the civilization, or sorry, the expansion with honor policy, was that civilization will transform Indians into Englishmen. It's this idea of education and opportunity. So he believed that Indians would become acquisitive, that they would become farmers, that they would become accustomed to European style land ownership, to property values, if they were so called educated to do such. He thought that when Indians ceased to think like Indians, that they would cease to be Indians. Um, now, even though he believed in this idea of vanishing Indians, of course, Indians being savages, if Indians are no longer savages, they don't have to vanish. Um, they, Or at least they don't have to vanish by dying out. They can vanish by becoming white. And this was something that uh, Knox believed was would be good for the reputation of the United States. The third assumption behind the expansion with honor policy was that natives would recognize the superiority of United States culture and that they would be willing and anxious to embrace the United States culture. Knox believed that the benefits of civilization, primarily, again, farming land in the manner that God intended, was obvious. And um, fourth, once civilized, native people will be easily integrated into society as equal citizens, that um, other Americans would embrace Indian people as part of their civic community. And once this happened, Native nations would disappear. There would be no necessity to uphold autonomy or sovereignty. And there was no point in maintaining, uh, for Indians to maintain a sovereign tribal nation when all members were quote-unquote civilized U.S. citizens. Now again, this is what Knox thought. This is not necessarily what Native American people thought. Um... Now, if you believe the things that Knox believed, then you can believe that Knox's policies would work. The problem was that all these assumptions were wrong, um, but they were assumptions that were developed in the light of very ethnocentric thinking about the United States political society, about the kind of culture and economy that was uh, routinely part of the United States, and Knox did not see where... Um, Native American societies or economies or cultures had any particular value compared to U.S. society or culture. Um, Indians were also adapting, leading us to talk about our second theme of adaptation to the U.S. expansion with honor policy. And their responses to the policy show how adaptation drives 
also drives historical change just as ethnocentricity does. So one of the major ways that Indians adapted to the presence of the United States was economic. The U.S. expansion with honor policy wanted to change Indians' occupations and make men into farmers and women into housewives, which would both mirror the conventional family structure of American society, but also in the minds of U.S., make land sessions easier um, because, again, Indians, by adopting this particular lifestyle, Indians were rejecting a hunting economy, and Knox's theory was that they would need less land or want less land if they became farmers. Of course, he had forgotten that Indians were already farmers, but that uh, women were doing the farming rather than men. And so this economic uh, change that the United States was insisting upon also meant a change in the division of labor in Indian households. Now, Indians resisted some of these changes, but they also adapted to them. So women retained their um, work in the fields and their essentially property ownership over labor and uh, products of agricultural work, but they also gained new tools and skills under the kinds of programs that Knox implemented, um, skills such as weaving, skills such as um, tool making for a variety of different household and farm tools, um, and other kinds of domestic work that white American women were doing at this time, Indian women began to do also. Now, this change in division of labor put Indian men in a bind. What were they supposed to do if they were not far, if they were not hunting, rather, or if hunting was not supposed to be their primary occupation? And they accommodated to the system and adapted in three different ways. First is they replaced the loss of access to deer in the southeast, for example, and the loss of their roles as deer hunters with um, access and promotion of livestock. So they became livestock herders, especially um, among the Choctaws and Cherokees and Creeks. And being livestock herders maintained men's traditional relationships with animals and wildlife and did not particularly compromise their gender identity by asking them to become farmers in the same way that women farmed. The second way that men adapted was to engage in commerce. Now, in most Native communities, especially in the East, where uh, this expansion with honor policy was being implemented, men had always been the ones to deal with diplomacy and outsiders. So trade fit in perfectly with what they'd always done. In this um, new era, trade took the form of opening stores, running taverns, building roads, running ferries, operating fisheries, commercial fisheries, and other things that um, catered to the needs of Indian communities as well as American settlers who were increasingly moving in around Indian nations. The third way that men adapted to the expansion with honor policy was to adopt European values of wealth accumulation um, among the four largest southern tribes, for example, 
Indian leaders began to purchase slaves, not so much for domestic production, not so much to uh, work in the fields for cash crop production, as to produce an agricultural surplus uh, for the market in cash crops. So the idea was that in Indian communities, slaves were not replacing domestic farm labor, for, uh, labor to grow food, labor to sustain sub, sustain subsistence, but rather slaves were being used to produce an agricultural surplus in the two primary cash crops, cotton and corn. By owning slaves, Indian men could engage in agriculture without having to become farmers themselves, without actually having to work in the fields. Um... The issue of the contradictions of slavery and of Indian slaveholding will be dealt with more as we move into understanding the effect of slaveholding on Indian removal, uh, particularly the effect of, of wealth that slaveholding brought um, with the politics of Indian removal. So we'll talk about that um, a little bit later on. And even though these adaptations were taking place among Indian communities, it became increasingly clear to Americans that the expansion with honor policy was not meeting American needs. It was not achieving those goals of the Continental Congress to secure borders and to um, expand to the Mississippi peacefully. The evidence for the expansion policy not working, of course, was the War of 1812 when British forces posed a real threat to the security of the United States and had many Indian allies um, in doing so. Of course, the Ohio Valley Wars that I talked about earlier and the severe embarrassments that the U.S. Army suffered were part of the evidence that people used to say the expansion with honor policy was not working. And Indians were not ceding a lot of land. Um, there were some sessions through the right of conquest treaties before the policy was put into place, but Indians were not giving up a lot of land by um, adapting their ways of life to the expansion with honor policy. So when Americans looked at Henry Knox's endeavors, they began to think that they were not working and that this the obvious and only other solution was to simply remove Indians, uh, especially from the east, and remove them further west so that the American borders could be safely expanded. <laughs> 